Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 184, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. An entire school board ended up resigning after a candid video conference. We'll share the audio that led to their resignations. And now that we're a year into virtual instruction, has that changed our perspective on mandating students to keep their video on? Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, some tips on how to teach your students to step up their video storytelling. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing this weekend? I am fantastic. The sun is shining. And that right there is my sole point of joy this morning. Yes, as much of the country knows, uh, we were in somewhat of a deep freeze uh, throughout much of the United States. And now things are finally starting to warm back up here. And a beautiful day here in the South. We are up to like the mid 60s almost, I think, at least over 60 degrees and sunny outside. So we'll take it. Yes, we will. Um, so much stuff to talk about. Uh, you know, usually we kind of keep things serious here. This story that uh, I wanted to jump into today is it's partially funny and partially sad. <laughs> and um, you may or may not have seen this headline. It was involving the school board in California. The entire school board actually ended up resigning from what we're about to show you, make you listen to. It's the Oakley Union School District. Have you seen this so far? I've read a little bit of the article uh, actually this morning, but I did not get an opportunity to click on any links. Okay, so I have the audio from a school board meeting that these board members thought they were having a private conversation on what looks like Zoom or whatever service they were using. And it turns out the conversation was not private. Um, And we actually have some sound bites from a reporter out of the NBC Bay Area. um, And it is... Well, I'll just play a couple of them and and you can decide for yourself. All right. So first up, um, and these are going to kind of come in little bite-sized pieces here. And they don't know what we do behind the scenes. And it's really unfortunate that they they want to pick on us because they want their babysitters back. Right. 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 So... So right, Did she there, call us babysitters. <laughs> well, I think she's referring to the parents in that case. So, um, no, I she said she they want their babysitters back. I think she's referring to educators. So <laughs> it, it says before she realized the public was listening in, school board president Lisa and I, I'm going to struggle with her last name, Brizadine, criticized mm-hmm. parents who continue to be frustrated by the district's COVID-related school closures. So this is in California where everything's still closed, and it looks like this board member is saying, you know, they're they're picking on us. Because they want their they babysitters want, they want back. To open. They, they want they want schools to open. They want their quote yeah. babysitters back. So yeah, that's Ooh. pretty rough. It gets worse. Um, but uh, that that was a pretty rough soundbite. Um, you know, and, and yeah. it also goes to talks about the struggles that I think 
areas that have been virtual for the entire past year are kind of going through right now. Yeah, we, we also have to take into consideration that this has not only impacted the schools, it has impacted the school community. There are parents and families who are struggling with their employment and keeping you know, being able to take care of their children. I think in this instance, calling us babysitters or assuming that's what parents think we are. Um, but it, it, if you just look at it, we completely disrupted, well, not us, the pandemic, disrupted every facet of our daily structural lives. And if parents are working nine to fives and think about some people working 12 hour shifts or taking double shifts, working multiple jobs, and now you have your children at home that you need to take care of, well, how do you provide for them financially? How do you feed them and keep a roof over their heads if you can't, you know, be at home to, to to take care of them appropriately? So there's always two sides to this reopening school coin now mm-hmm. from the educator's perspective. We want PPE. We want safety. We want all the things that should be in place um, before we bring students back in the classroom. But we do need to be understanding understanding about the difficulty that parents have been placed, uh, been put in as well. No doubt. And and so the conversation continues with these, these board members. School board trustee Richie Macedas then appears to link parents' frustration over the closures to drug use. Here's what he says. My brother had a delivery service for medical marijuana. The high clientele were parents with their kids in school. <laughs> <laughs> So the school board members awesome. go on and they're laughing about his brother who has a medical marijuana delivery service. And he says that their best clientele are the parents. stunned. Yeah. So, you know. He put his brother's business out there, first of all. Right. Family privacy violation. But to correlate his brother's medical prescription for marijuana to something that parents are either missing out on or wanting to do is awful. This one, and I don't believe this next one that I have here that comes up, the superintendent hasn't resigned yet, but this is the superintendent speaking. And this is the one that bothered me the most, me, a person who like believes in transparency and stuff. So he's, I don't know if he's trying to curry favor with the board who's aggravated with parents at this moment, but he he's going to tell the board that there's a new technology that aims to limit public comment by cutting off parents mid-sentence. So listen to him kind of pitching this idea to them. I was... I was talking to um, one of my buddies, he's the superintendent in Benicia, and we're talking about public comment, and they just recently switched. So their tech department set it up to where uh, people that want to submit a public comment call in and have to leave a message. And so, and the message will cut you off at three minutes. So it's like, hi, my name is Greg Hetrick. I, I live at, you know, 2221 Delta Road, Knights in California. And I wish to speak on blah, 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 blah. And they say it and da, 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 da. And if, if three minutes comes, it just cuts them off mid-sentence and you're done. And it's like, and then that gets, uh, that gets saved and they, they send it in. I love that. Right? Like, I was just, and that's a good idea. When I was president. Great. We need that. I love that. We need that. That's a good idea. <laughs> I mean... I've been to many a school board meetings and you listen to these parents talk and that's just part of the job. You, you've got to hear them out. Yeah. And the idea of cutting off a parent three minutes at well, a school meeting. Ugh. It's funny hearing them, but you have to go and pull your school board policy. And if the procedure in a, in a 
uh, open school board meeting is three minutes per person, um, then that's the protocol. And generally, in some instances, and I've, I've seen that, that is three minutes um, standard, and especially if you're just trying to get feedback on, say, there's something you want to bring to a vote soon and you want parents to be able to advocate or just be able to say why they're against it, that type of thing. Um, when you're dealing with, um, like I said, personnel issues or um, complaints, anything dealing with due process, um, that has a different procedure as well. And it's done in executive session. And one thing we need to also remember is that parents and visitors are required to contact um, school districts in advance to request um, mm -hmm. to be on the agenda right. to address the board. So having a recording, um, since this is, you know, right now we're dealing with virtual participation, having a recording to cut it off at three minutes to control the timing on your board meeting. I'm not going to say that that's negative. I think that that's helpful. But the way he presented it, the superintendent, is by the time you give the vital information that's required right. to get on the agenda, name, address, demographic, whatever, um, what you want to address, and then to be able to give your stance on it, you're not actually getting three minutes. If you were to do this live, you would actually call in that type of information or write in that kind of information and then get your full three minutes um, to share your public comments. So they are tickled that they have found a way to cut off some of that yeah. <laughs> three minutes. And that's so ugly. Yeah, it is. That that one bothers me because I just feel like that's the way government works. And they're almost like, oh, we won't have to listen to them. So that one, that one kind of. They are uh, forgetting who they work for. Exactly. And and I will point out again, I think they all the board members have resigned uh, thus far as, after the, all this came out. Um, here's one more. And then I'm going to actually after that, I'll play you a clip of when they realize that. It's all been publicized, so it's a little awkward there. But um, here's where the president of the school board um, actually uses profanity to threaten parents um, at one point. Um, so here's what she said about a parent who criticized her online. Are we alone? Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to call me out, I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> Sorry, that's just me. <laughs> It's it's the laughter afterwards too that bothers me. You know, I don't know. I don't even think I can laugh. Right. I was not expecting that. I am so caught off guard right now. Not necessarily that that's how she felt. I mean, I don't know what comments or what parent came after her, but to say that in an executive session whether it was live or not is unprofessional. Mm -hmm. And I am I am so stunned right now. Yeah. Um, I guess we forget that they're human beings just like us and right. that, you know, they're moms, dads, wives, husbands, but when you're in um, that seat during that meeting, there's a way to, that we're, we're supposed to conduct business. And when the meeting is over, if we're walking to our vehicle, you know, and we want to kind of have a sidebar conversation that's between you and I, um, or if we want to get on the phone later and kind of fuss a little bit about what we've experienced. But if the meeting has not been officially adjourned and minutes are done being or not done being recorded, then it is so far out of line. I, I am, <laughs> I yeah. am outdone. And, it, and here's the moment when I think they realize that they're busted. Uh oh, Laura Lanier, just FYI, you guys have the meeting. Oh, we have the meeting open to the public right now. Uh uh. That's what Laura just said. Great. That had to be so awkward when you, when you realize you know, they probably thought someone was pulling a prank on them when they told them that oh this meeting's public but no it it really was public. 
I'm just shaking my head. Right, right. I am shaking my head. And, you know, in their defense, I think um, they all have apologized and, um, like I said, resigned. And I think that was yeah. the proper thing to do there. I don't I don't really think it's it's yeah, explainable. Yeah, kind of got a little habit of that. There's a culture of that in America where we, we do things that are awful. We get caught because of media or someone recording it, and then we want to apologize. <laughs> I'm kind of over that. Right. Me too. Anyhow, I just figured we'd have to share that. It was, it was one of those moments where, um, like I said, it's, it's funny. Part of it's funny, but on the other side of it, it's, it's a little sad that, uh, they had to deal with that amongst their leadership there over. And again, that was in the Oakley Union Elementary School District Board of Trustees. So it's a little different than where we are, where you have them for the whole county. From an administrative perspective, that is embarrassing. Yeah. So, um, other topic I wanted to touch on today is something that I know most people listening to this have, have kind of already been thinking about this, but it's more, I'm just kind of curious where if people's opinions on it have changed, because mine kind of has. And I was reading this article in Ed Utopia, and it it was about the idea of, you know, how you can get your students to turn on their cameras. And I know this varies from district to district. Some places require it, some don't, some try to strongly recommend it. Um, where have you all kind of been on cameras when you're doing hybrid or virtual learning? Well, first of all, I think it depends on your learning management system. I'm in the in the beginning when everyone was, you know, in panic. Uh, when we initially were kind of troubled with the pandemic and how do we provide instruction? Um, everyone jumped to Zoom or Google Meet. Those were the most common. They were free, and you wanted people to turn their cameras on. Then we had to stop and think about, you know, uh, poverty and equity issues mm-hmm. like. Some children are living in squalor. Some children are living, you know, you just don't know what's going on in different homes. And so to demand that a child turn their camera on, and this is, you know, I'm a parent and I'm a school administrator. If they are actively engaged in your lesson, what does it matter if you're looking at their face or not? And so I say that from the perspective of, you know, Zoom and Google Meet. Now, by the time the summer came, we had our act together. We had our COVID protocols in place and we purchased a learning management system, which operates very differently. We can provide live instruction. Um, When we're doing that, the students can see our face down in the corner, but then our entire screen provides whatever it is that we're teaching from. And then there's a live active chat going on the entire time. And I personally, as an administrator, sit in a lot on this virtual, on the virtual instruction to make sure that my teachers are providing it, to make sure that um, we're giving, you know, adequate instruction to our students who have chosen 100% virtual learning, but even on our virtual days from the hybrid model. And what I have seen be extremely effective is during the lesson when the teacher is guiding them. And then when the teacher moves to the questioning segment, she is looking for those responses in the chat box and she's affirming them. Mm -hmm. She's guiding them. She's leading that instruction. And then she may even have to do some correcting, but she's also, you know, paying attention to participation and gauging whether they're truly understanding the material or the skill that she's teaching. And I think that that is just fine. Now, um, I know of times where they want the students to work in groups. And so they may try to break out into these breakout rooms and it's much more effective if you can see one another. But at the end of the day, how are you evaluating the learning outcomes and are the outcomes sufficient? That's what's most important. And that's just my opinion, because right now you and I, we have not been in the studio together in, in, in a year. And we don't show our faces, and we I think we're doing a pretty good job of ca- capturing our podcast weekly. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with 
almost everything you're saying, and I, like you said, we are having this conversation. We don't use video. We're just kind of an audio. Even when I interview people all over the country and the world, I, I don't ever really ask them to turn on video. But there, it's kind of one-on-one. But when you're teaching a class of 25 students, I guess, you know, I'll, let me step back. My initial I thought when they were like, you need to have the cameras on for class was like you said, I was like, ah, I don't know that we really need to be in everyone's home. It's it's more of an equity issue. You don't know what kids are going through. That's a lot you to ask them. You don't know where them. they're hiding in the closet exactly. in the bathroom where they can get the most, you know, non-embarrassing background. You, you just don't know what they're dealing with. Exactly. So t- the idea of mandating it, I never have really liked. Um, no. However, from a teacher's perspective, I can understand trying to give a presentation to 25 students to try to teach them. And just imagine if 20 of the cameras are off, if that's what you're so up let me against. ask you this. If you are imagining 20 of the cameras off and you are presenting instructional material, you're sharing your screen mm-hmm. and your focus is on the material that's on the screen. When are you looking at the 25 faces? Well, and that that goes back to what I mentioned in a previous episode one or two weeks ago where I said it's nice if, you, if a teacher has two monitors so they can have all those faces up. So they can see heads nodding mm-hmm. or they can see if a student – they can get some maybe just visual cues of like, yeah, I'm following you. I don't just have my camera off and I'm mm-hmm. you know looking at my phone while you're talking. I don't know. Let I me just, paint a little picture for sure. you. Okay. Imagine having 25 smiling faces in your classroom and you're at the board and you're underlining, highlighting, circling, you know, pointing out some very important vocabulary words in a passage. Mm-hmm. And you turn and you look at the, at the class and are you with me? Everybody give me a thumbs up if you're with me. And they give you a thumbs up and then you move on a little bit and you see a few nodding. Do you know that there's two ways to look at that? One, they're highly engaged and they're really paying attention to what I'm doing. Or mm-hmm. two, they're just compliant because they don't want to be called on. Yeah. No, that. So compare that to showing faces on on Zoom or whatever your platform is. And so you see my face. That doesn't mean I'm listening to you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, I guess I would say, and I think that's kind of where this Ed, Edutopia article is going, is like, it doesn't have to be mandated, but there are some things you can do to try to mm-hmm. build trust or, mm-hmm. or motivate students to, to turn their cameras on. But certainly there's- It could be the particular time of the lesson. It could be the first five minutes is our morning check-in, which is something a lot mm-hmm. of classroom oh, teachers yeah. My do. Yeah, my son does that. Where we do, yeah, and I love that portion of the segment where we're doing you know that, that little sharing time because we're building our relationship. And so you show your face so everybody can connect with you. But when you're finished, if your camera goes back off, but now it's Christina's turn, well, I'm looking at Christina. And so I guess it's just it just really depends- um, on what's actually happening in the lesson by grade level, to be honest. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting thing to think about. What do you think most schools are doing? Are you hearing that? I know your, your district's doing oh, one thing. let's talk about our district. Right. Our school, our, our children are required um, to log into that Google Meet and to be on. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, and um, I asked my son one morning, I happened to be here uh during the weather days and uh, I was able to observe him in his virtual classroom and he had it on because it is required. He had it moved to the side a little bit. Um, He was eating his cereal at the same time, yet he was fully engaged. He was answering his questions. He had done his pre-reading and all of that. And I said, you don't need to move the laptop over a little more so she can see your full face. He says, mom, I promise you, she gets a hundred percent effort from me. I'm not one of the ones she's worried about. And I left him alone. Yeah. Yeah. If she hasn't said a word, then, you know, hey, but I guess the, the mandate is because if you really look at some other factors, um, there's a higher or should I say an increase in the number of students who are performing poorly. Failure rates are up 
um, average daily attendance is just terribly down. And so a lot of those factors are, I think, are being taken into consideration when they're asking teachers to make students show their faces. It's another way also for schools to try to gauge if children are okay. But I just I just think you have to tread water. You have to just be very careful about that. And if you aren't a teacher that's been in a school for a year or more to know some of these students that have already established some type of connection or relationship, you just got to be really careful because some of them are ashamed to show you their background. Yeah. Or what's happening inside their home. It might not be that it's, you know, not tidy or clean. It could be the behaviors and actions of the other family members. Right. They might be worried about what, you know, you can actually always turn Mm -hmm. on the camera, but what might happen three minutes into this? Like his, somebody. Yeah. Didn't we talk about this on an episode where, I think, I mean, a long time ago, um, maybe early summer, we talked about an elementary child was, you know, actively engaged in his lesson and his mom was drinking alcohol and doing drugs behind him and he didn't know it. And they, the teacher saw it. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things you got to be careful about. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Well, certainly a a healthy discussion. Christine, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Um, Are you ready for today's bright idea? Yes. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is much like myself. Clement Townsend comes from the world of journalism, but now he is dedicating his efforts to helping students and organizations step up their digital storytelling. Clement, welcome to Class Dismiss. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And so I got to ask, how does a guy like yourself or or like me even, who was on the the television side of things, end up now kind of dedicating his time and his resources to, to working with the youth? Was this just kind of a calling for you? I would say so. My parents were both educators. My mother was a teacher and my dad was a principal. So I guess I kind of already had the educator sort of in me. As you mentioned, I choose I chose a different path in terms of journalism and sports journalism. But there came a point in my career when my journalism career came to a fork in the road, should I say. And I really had to take inventory of my skills, you know, what I wanted to do next And I really thought about how could I use my journalism and media background and combine it with the passion that I had, which was for youth or with youth. I've always had an interest even throughout my TV career in terms of giving back to youth and teaching youth and training youth and just really trying to figure out how could I put those two things together and try to move forward and make an impact. We are in in a world where the idea of like anybody being on video is somewhat common. I mean, anyone can pick up their phone and just start talking to the camera. Um, What is missing, though, that you felt like, all right, I've got to help these kids out in terms of being a digital storyteller? For a lot of students, I would say they don't have proper training in the actual classroom. So as you mentioned, the barrier is now low with technology Anybody can pick up a video camera, their phone and start to record and create content. But there are still some people who might be hesitant or don't know the proper way to do it. And I feel that it's so integral in terms of equity for everybody to have access and have that training. So that's why I really try to emphasize and let educators and administrators know, hey, this is something that should now be in the classroom. Certainly technology and our world has changed. And I feel like uh, the educational system and some of the things that they teach should change. And and, and Nick, I, I think you might attest to this. A lot of times I see youth creating videos for fun. And, and there's a time and place for that. Vlogs, mm-hmm. prank videos, dancing videos, challenges. 
But you and I, as a journalist, I understand the power of media in terms of messaging, in terms of informing people, in terms of inspiring and impacting people. So just trying to give youth another option. Hey, you see so many other people out there creating things, but what if you really did something that had a positive impact, a powerful impact, and really understood and and got a chance to experience what it's like to create? That's the other thing. So many people do look at content or consume content, but trying to get it in a classroom so you can now get students creating content, I think that has huge and so many benefits for young people. What is your idea then? I mean, how do you want to reach these students? Are you trying to reach them on an individual basis? Are you trying to like get into schools and say, hey, let me work with your students for a period of time? I originally started my organization, BCM, Broadcasting Career Mentor. And prior to the pandemic, I was actually in schools. I've co-taught some programs during the school day, and I had a standalone program after school as well, where, Nick, I would actually go in with a teleprompter and give students in fifth grade, 12 years old, exposure, reading a teleprompter to help their reading skills. Mm-hmm. I would certainly take my microphone and a camera and teach them about reporting to help their speaking skills, communication skills, and things of that nature. And so then with the pandemic hit and schools closed down, I had to pivot. So now it's an online model. So now it's an online program where it's self-directed learning, something that students kind of do in an asynchronous environment, whereas teachers who didn't necessarily get a communications degree like we have, Nick, and they might be hesitant in terms of editing and storytelling. Now they have a resource that's step by step that can help students create this content and they can kind of integrate it into English, almost like English 2.0. Certainly when you or I were in school, maybe they would give us a topic and we would write a paper. But now, as we talked about, the barrier has been removed and technology is so accessible. What about student voice and student choice? So students maybe pick the topic in an English class, pick something that matters to them, something that's relevant to them. And they now tell a video story and start to create that meaningful content that I spoke about earlier. Let's give our our listeners some tips. Like what is something that students should be doing differently? Like, is there anything you ever see when you look at, you know, just a class or some students putting together a video where you think, all right, if I could just get in there and tell them X, Y, and Z. A lot of times, I think even some of the small things that you and I might think everybody knows, they might not necessarily know. So say for instance, just holding your camera horizontal, shooting (laughs) your video sideways. Right. Like that might be the most basic thing to a lot of people, but I still work with students that are holding their camera vertical. And when the video comes out, it kind of has the black boxes on the sides. Right. That's a small thing to some, but just in terms of the look and how everything is professional, if, if, a, if a student or anyone, if anyone is shooting a video for pretty much Facebook or YouTube or to share with their family, they should be holding the phone sideways, horizontal. Pretty much the only reason you will hold your phone vertical is if you're doing like an Instagram video in terms of aspect ratios. Um, And then just in terms of narration, you know, a lot of people are creating content and they might be doing video or pictures. But I feel like narration or voicing a story is such a lost art. And there may be some students who aren't necessarily strong writers 
but they can still show mastery of information and, and really do the research and, and better able to communicate if they're able to speak or narrate and do a video. So allowing them a different way to showcase their learning, I think has a lot of benefits. And even for students, so some students might excel because they're better communicators in terms of voicing or narrating a video project. But then there are a lot of students that I work with who are nervous and certainly public speaking skills, communication skills are just transferable skills that everybody needs. So allowing them another way, uh, as some educator would say, a project based way to really improve those communication skills. I mean, I was working with a student recently who said I, I was so nervous when I was trying to narrate. I had never did this before. But once they're able to get over that hump, then they can feel more comfortable speaking and presenting. And that has such valuable benefits for students. Um, in whatever career field and as they move forward in life. Yeah, you know, I think all journalists have their own kind of methodology of how they put together what, what you and I would call a package, that story that would, would go on the air. Um, and I know you had a sports background, so we'll, we'll kind of use this as an analogy and let's you and I kind of work together and walk through like somebody listening, what it would be like to cover, let's just say the high school football team goes to the state championship, right? And, and you're a student and you want to tell that story. I mean, for me, I would go there, I would shoot the video, I would probably get some sound bites from some players, maybe um, after the game or before the game or get some good net sound during the game. And and then when I would get back into the edit bay and get ready to try to narrate this story, I don't know about you, but I would first log all my sound bites. I want to know what sound I have to work with. Is it, you know, like I said, that good gnat sound, maybe from a coach screaming something from the sidelines? Is it a good sound bite from some players after the game? And then I write around those sound bites. Is that kind of your process as well? One thousand percent. Certainly. You learned it the same way I learned it because really the sound bites in the video should tell the story. You as a narrator and what you write should just weave it together. So to your point, yes, everything is built around the sound that I have. And then my narration kind of just allows it to flow. Absolutely. I, I watch a lot of high school sports. I have kids who have been in high school and um, I watch the yearbook staff. They'll come out a lot. And they, you know, yearbook staff is more than just the, the days when I was in high school where you would have like just a paper yearbook. They are doing the videos. They're doing, you know, high end photography. They have good gear a lot of times, you know, that's kind of school issued Canon cameras or whatever. And um, I, I want to help them so bad. And I really just need to contact the local high school and ask if I can come by because I do a lot of video work. Um, but just like watching them use gimbals and, um, you know, wondering if their frame rates set properly and wondering if their shutter speed set properly. Like, I, I kind of wonder, are, are they getting that training? Is this the type of stuff that you're working with with schools? So I don't necessarily go that deep because when you talk about gimbals and frame rate and things of that nature, certainly that is some of the maybe I won't even say advanced, but maybe some of the next level stuff. And a lot of schools don't necessarily even have uh, that sort of equipment. But certainly I do speak with schools and in the program that I have just kind of using your phone, just, you know, recording videos on your phone. Um, I really teach it at a basic level because, again, it's a program where teachers can use. So I want to make sure that teachers feel comfortable with the information as well. So when we get into kind of some of the frame rate and shutter speed, uh, teachers might not be up to speed with that. And then a lot of times it may just have to be students and a school using cell phones because they might not necessarily have the budget for a video camera that will have some of the uh, extra things that you and I would normally use, that sort of thing. So I don't necessarily get into that part. And, and 
really to the actual telling of the story is what I really try to get across. Certainly you mentioned the sports example, but what is it if just like a teacher at a school wins a golden apple award? What if the student just wants to tell that story to kind of increase the uh, or help the school with the culture or, or have a better sense of community in the school? Or what if it's just a project where the student says interview somebody, excuse me, the teacher might say interview someone that's like a role model, whether it's a family member or somebody in the community. So, you know, just trying to get them comfortable with the storytelling process, because, Nick, when you talk about the gimbal or you talk about a cannon or talk about a cell phone, there's a lot of different um, video recording devices. There are a lot of different programs in terms of Adobe Rush or Premiere or WeVideo or LumaFusion. But if they can understand the process that you mentioned, how to actually ask good questions, how to do research, how to actually uh, pick sound bites and how to tell a story and now add video to it, I feel the process will really just help them as opposed to really trying to teach the equipment because equipment changes. But storytelling is something that I believe is timeless. Yeah, well, and you said kind of you're talking about the interview, like the art of the interview. What's a good tip to give somebody who is interviewing somebody? What's the best thing you can tell somebody? Listen, that's that's exactly. one of the exactly right. Yeah, that's I would say the same thing. Listen, because certainly you know I teach, and anyone who's doing an interview should do proper research and go in with questions. But it shouldn't be I'm trying to necessarily ask these specific questions in this specific order. How the interview goes should really be based on what the the person or the subject says and what you're listening, because they might say something that wasn't on your list of questions that might bear them expanding or a follow up. So making sure you're listening to get the best answers and make sure you ask the best questions. You might not get a chance to ask all the questions that you have planned, but that's okay because as long as you're able to listen and ask pertinent questions to what the person said, that makes for a very professional and I would say a very engaging interview. I love it. And you know, I think you would probably um, back me up on this. A lot of times when I would go cover a story, you go in thinking you're going to get one thing. And, and I think sports has probably happened all the time. Like you would go in thinking, I'm going to talk about this team and their winning record this season. But then you get there and another story just jumps out at you. And you have to have the instinct to say, all right, that story is better than why I'm here. And that's the story I'm going to tell today. Absolutely. I would agree. That just comes in or that just goes to having an open mind. You know, to your point, you have an idea of what your topic is and what the story might be about, but just kind of letting the story develop, letting the story progress and just having an open mind that, you know what, to your point, like, I think I might want to take this in a different direction based on what the person said, based on how they opened up, based on maybe some of the information that they gave me that I didn't have going in. It might be better that I take it in a different direction and it might be better for the audience as well. It, when you're working with students, is there any type of like exercises that you do in terms of storytelling? What do you do to kind of get them fired up and get those wheels turning in their head? So for me, it's just really about student choice. Uh, if you say exercises, you know, I really want students to tell stories that they are interested in, to tell stories that are relevant to them. So if that's just cyberbullying 
or some things that are going on in their neighborhood, something they feel like should be in the spotlight. Certainly, I typically work with fifth through 12th grade. So from middle school to high school, a lot of students are into gaming. That's huge. Okay, so tell me, why are you into gaming? What is the history of gaming? What do you think the future will be like of gaming? So just really trying to get them to create a sense of ownership, you know, kind of having like a student centered story. You can pick the story. You can pick the topic. It's something that you enjoy. So I kind of try to use that sort of framework to get them to buy into it. Here's a question you may not have the answer to, but what do you think the future, and I don't want to say of journalism, but of video content creation is? What's Where are we going to be 10 years from now? Wow. 10 years from now, you're asking me to pull out my crystal ball. I don't necessarily know if I have the answer to that. All I can say is... I don't see it going anywhere in terms of people watch video, I would say every single day, whether they're watching TV like we used to do, or whether they're watching YouTube like a lot of the youth that I encounter do, or whether they're watching video on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. I mean, it's so many different platforms uh, from Snapchat and things of that nature. I mean, video it, is really embedded in our society. So I only see people watching more and more video. Um, I don't know, Nick, maybe you don't know. Can you watch video on an Apple watch? So I, I think, you know, there will be even more devices. We might watch video on our watches if we don't already, you know, in the future. So just just being comfortable, creating content, and not just consuming, I feel is super valuable for students. You know, I always feel like school should actually prepare students for the world. And if things are happening in our society, students should get a taste of that um, in their education and their training as well. So I just think video will be embedded even more. I don't, I don't, if it's on the phone and it's on the watch, it's hard for me to say what else will be created, but just even more places for folks to consume video and, and watch video. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, we're going to continue to see video be this dominant force. However, where we're getting that video and who we're getting it from, I think will completely be flipped upside down over the next 10 years. I think the the idea of a, a local news station even will probably have its whole business model flipped over because I think people still have the need for the content and they still have the desire to watch the content. But I don't know that the business model is really there in, in the grand, you know, local TV station sense. I think it'll be you know, our youth who will, will be coming up and they may have a popular channel on whatever platform that may be. And they may be delivering news, but in a totally different way and in a very singular way. Um, so I, I don't know what that's going to look like, but if someone finds a way to monetize that and incentivize people to, to deliver that content uh, and make it easy to make money off of that, I think we'll see that type of explosion take place and really override a lot of the conglomerates. That's just my yeah. thought. And I just hope, too, that accuracy and integrity kind of remains at the heart of it all. I believe, you know, in local news, you could trust the local reporter or the local anchor. Certainly now, though, with so many different outlets, blogs, and certainly we're talking video, but people just, you know, creating things. You don't always know what's real from fake media. You don't always know uh, what's really sensationalized, you know, what's super accurate. So with so many people creating things and putting out information, 
when things, I guess, when the dust does settle and maybe some of these new news platforms and things of that nature pop up, I really just hope that they have that accuracy piece in there because I feel like that's super important to give people factual information. No doubt. It certainly does feel a little bit like the Wild West out there at times. So I hear I hear what you're saying. Um, let me ask you this. Um, what's a good way for somebody to keep up with you and all the work you're doing? So certainly I would love for them to visit the website, www.videojournalismpro.com, www.videojournalismpro.com. That's an online program where teachers can actually just press play and start to getting their students creating video stories in the classroom. Um, certainly they can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, Clement Townsend, or and also Facebook, C Townsend TV, first initial C, last name Townsend TV. I would love to connect with folks, would love to chat with anyone about just putting media and video in the classroom and how that can benefit the youth of the next generation. Hey, uh, Clement, I did not give you a heads up on this, but I know you've listened to an episode before. So let me ask you, are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. Let's do it. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Reading. I think reading skills are just so important. I think that's just a, a core skill that just is timeless. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? That would have to be media arts. I mean, I just don't think it's enough schools that have it. There are some schools, but I encounter so many schools that have no media, no video, I mean, Nick, I would have to say that. Come on. I figured that's where you're going. Uh, what does every child deserve? Every child deserves to know that they're important. Um, just for someone to let them know that they have a purpose, for someone to let them know that they have a unique set of skills that the world needs, for them just to, to, to know that they are important. And it's a reason for them being here and they can make it, they can make an impact on this world. What do you think the biggest challenge is for today's educators? Wow. That's a tough one. And this is supposed to be a pop quiz. That one kind of caught me off guard. The biggest challenge for today's educators, I would just say just making sure that they're actually able to connect with students and build strong relationships. Certainly, we've talked so much about how the world has changed um, and some of the models, some of the way that learning takes place has to do with trying to make sure students get certain test scores and achieve certain levels. So just making sure they're really able to reach students the way that they teach the activities, the, the, the things that they do in their classroom, making sure that they're able to really reach and connect with students and build those relationships. What do you think the best gift to give an educator is? The best gift to give an educator? A day off. I mean, right. specifically... Right. In this time in, in which we live that has been so challenging during the pandemic with with all remote, with hybrid, with, you know, just, just so many different external factors going on right now, I would just say, you know, giving them a day off, a, a nice vacation. What could be better than that? Uh, which teacher changed your life? Hmm. I would say my third teacher, Miss O'Quinn. She just really. Um, instilled in me again that sense of importance, that sense of that I could um, do whatever I set my mind to. Uh, the fact that you know I had a unique set of talents and gifts, and to just believe in myself. So it wasn't necessarily academically I did well academically, but also just really just helped me with that self confidence. Made a difference at a young age, and always stuck with me. And last question: pen or pencil? Pencil, old school. 
All right, Clement Townsend, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. If you want to catch up with them again, that website is videojournalismpro.com. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.